Hey guys, it is another day, another edition of the MMA Ratings Podcast. Today is November 16th, 2017, and this is Rafael Garcia back with Schwan Humes for another hour or so talking to you about mixed martial arts and we got quite a bit to cover but first and foremost how you doing there Schwan? how you doing tonight well i'm great great as usual I'm ready to talk about this thing we call mixed martial arts of course man of course so we got quite a bit to talk about um we have a event to cover from last week we got one to cover from this week and we got a hell of a lot of news to talk about so let's go ahead and jump right in Let's talk about UFC Fight Night 120. Um, this was man. This was a this was a pretty big show. Uh, it was a lot better than a lot of people thought it was going to be. It was a great card on paper. I actually didn't even really really realize how good it was on paper until the event was going on. But man, it was a hell of a night. It was definitely a lot of fun from start to finish. We got quite a bit to cover. What, what were your what was your initial thoughts of the entire show from start to finish? Uh, I thought it was I thought it was a really good car. They had a lot of the the pacing was a little bit better than it usually is, and the fights were all well matched. Even if they, everybody wasn't a name involved, it was even matches with kind of back and forth action. You didn't really see too many matches where nobody had where only one guy had a chance to win. Is which are the kind of fights I want. I I, I want important fights, but more than not, I want across the board competitive fights because you can't get to those important fights unless you have people being developed in competitive tough fights where they're, they're forced to develop, they're forced to show what they have inside as far as their mentality and will as a fighter. Yeah, man, I'm not going to disagree with you there at all, man. So let's start right with the main event where we saw Dustin Poirier get a big win over Anthony Pettis, a, a sound win, too, from start to finish. I'm not going to lie, I picked against Poirier, I picked Pettis, um, even right before this fight started. Um, I thought that Dustin Poirier takes too much damage and he just takes it very badly. He kind of fights, he gets reckless in there, but man, he stayed composed. He had a very sound game too. You notice he was getting those takedowns up against the cage and using his grappling to kind of overwhelm Anthony Pettis. Talk to me about what you saw here. Uh, well, the biggest thing is Poirier is a good fighter and, and I picked against him too for, for a lot of the same reasons you did. When he He's taken a lot of punishment. He's had very few fights where he's just walked through somebody and hasn't taken as good as he's given. So I thought, even though Pettis isn't as good as he used to be, Pettis is still capable of having that one punishing shot or a dynamic shot that he could put together and get a, get a fish, finish on the feet. Or even with submissions, he, he's, he's not a technically all-round good grappler, but he's good enough that if you give him an opening or you get careless, he can finish you with something. So I, I really thought Pettis was going to actually win this fight and finish. But what ended up happening was, the thing that people forget about the Pettis brothers, this goes for Sergio too, they're most effective when they're pressuring, when they're dictating the pace. And in the article actually written, I said one of the main things that Anthony needs is respect. Just like, was it Aretha Franklin said? You, you, gotta ha- you gotta respect his power and his athleticism for him to be effective. If you're walking through, if you're not responding to his power, like he hit you with a power shot, and you keep pressuring him, or you don't let his his big his big play offense scare you off, and you just apply pressure and you back him up, he's not nearly as effective off the back foot as he is off the front foot. His footwork isn't good enough, and his range of his skills with his hands and his, the variation in the kicks he uses aren't good enough for him to keep guys off of him and to reassert himself and then start applying pressure on them. And basically, Poirier just started marching him down. At no point was he able to consistently push Poirier back. The few moments he was. 
he looked effective. When he wasn't able to push Poirier back, he was getting dominated. He was getting taken down. He was getting forced against the fence, and he was getting outworked on the feet. So there's quite a bit to talk about there because, um, man, like it was it was pretty resounding from start to finish. What did you think of Poirier's game plan? Like he scored some key takedowns and some key positions to kind of put put Pettis in a bad spot. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the, the thing about Poirier is I, I know people who train with him. I know people who work with him quite a bit. And the thing is, he's got all, I said this before, he's got all the skills. There's almost nothing he can do. He's, 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 if you really look at his, his fight game, it's not as measured and efficient, but it's very much like Demetrius Johnson. He can grapple. He can wrestle. He can tie you up in the clinch. He can fight you at range. He's got a good enough range of kicks at range and punches. He can get into wrestling exchanges on the feet and control you and use a variations of body lock takedowns, single legs, double legs to get you where he needs to get you. He can do it all. The difference between him and Johnson is Johnson always has a game plan. He always sticks to it and he always executes. Poirier oftentimes will get away from that. I know for a fact, he, when he fought Conor McGregor, he was supposed to take McGregor down the same way he took Pettis down, the same way he took Joe Duffy down. But for some reason, he didn't do it. He decided he'd get into an exchange with him. In this fight, he did what he was supposed to do. He disrupted Anthony's ability to set up offense and to pressure him by constantly making him defend takedowns. Either defend takedowns or get taken down and have to defend himself off, off his back. Anthony can never really consistently pressure because his defensive wrestling isn't good enough for him to come in and pressure without the risk of being taken down. So he started backing up trying to increase the space so that he could kind of walk Poirier into a shot or he could maybe scoot away so that Poirier couldn't get his hands on him. But his footwork defensively isn't good enough for that either. So when Poirier threw that mixture of throwing in takedown attempts, he essentially further holstered Pettis' will to fire off offensively. Because Pettis isn't a, isn't a busy fighter at all. He fights in spots. And he pressures you in fights in spots. Once he was afraid of the takedowns or the takedown attempts, his work rate lessened, dropped off even more. And it gave Poirier the ability to apply pressure on the feet because Pettis didn't know if he was just going to come swinging and throwing punches and kicks or if he was going to transition from a punch into a takedown attempt. So he basically shut Pettis's ability to be offensive consistently down because he didn't know if he was going to get countered or if he was going to have Poirier get his hands on him and put him on the ground. It, it, was, it was actually a very well thought out strategy. It was very smart. It wasn't what everybody expected from Poirier, but it, it's, it's what he needed to do to win. He, he highlighted a hole in Pettis's game and he used the takedowns as another way to attack that limitation in Pettis' skill set. Yeah, man, he definitely exposed those uh, limitations there. What do you think of is of well, excuse me? What do you think is next for Poirier? He said he wanted the winner of Gace, Justin Gaethje and uh, Eddie Alvarez. I think that that's a good position to take to get the winner of, of that fight next. But if you were in charge, what would you what would you do with him next? Well, I mean, that's the fight he wants. And he wants a big. He wants a big fight. He wants a name fight. He wants a fight that'll put him in position for a title fight. And I can see him trying to go for that. I don't know if beating Anthony Pettis gets you that fight, though. I mean, in his last couple fights, the time, the in his last couple fights, he moved to lightweight. He beat a lot of fringe lightweight contenders. But when he fought the best guys, he fought Michael Johnson. He got stopped. He was running a clinic on Eddie Alvarez. But the fact of the matter is, he got he he got caught in exchanges. He started fighting Alvarez's fight. And even though and Eddie Alvarez was kind of putting the wood to him before he basically disqualified himself while hitting him while he was down, nobody can say that the, the momentum in that fight hadn't turned. So all his fights, a lightweight, haven't been over top-tier guys. 
Jim Jim Miller, not a top tier guy. Yancey Medeiros, not a top tier guy. Um, I think he fought Joe Duffy at this weight. Joe Duffy isn't a top 15, top 10 ranked lightweight. He hasn't really beaten anybody of note at lightweight for him to be able to demand a shot. And, and this is something you'll know. You're an MMA fan, so you'll notice when fighters do this. If somebody else would have beat Pettis, they would say, well, Pettis is only such and such and such and such in so many fights. But when Poirier beat him, he's like, he's a former champion. He's coming off a win over Jim Miller. A win over Jim Miller doesn't mean as much as it used to be. And Pettis was a champion like a year and a half to two years ago. So What's interesting that, that about doesn't that, mean as much. Um, Dustin Poirier made a very interesting point because he, I, I think someone may have asked him a similar question to that. And let me, let me pull up Pettis's uh, record real quick because what Poirier said was very key. He said, Max Holloway and Eddie Alvarez both got title shots off of de defeating. Actually, Max. So Eddie Alvarez and Max Holloway both got title shots off of beating Anthony Pettis. So he, um, excuse me, Max Holloway and Eddie Alvarez they both got title shots right after beating Anthony Pettis, and he tried to use that as his segue, saying, "Hey, I've done the same thing. I finished him. I finished him in violent fashion. That he, so he should be the next man to kind of get a title shot off of that." And while he kind of backed away from that and saying he wanted the winner of of Gaethje and Alvarez, I think that he should. I think that that should be his next uh, avenue. He should fight the winner of Gaethje, of Justin Gaethje and uh, Eddie Alvarez. And if he gets a win there, then I could definitely see him added to the, to the title picture, regardless of whatever's going on with Tony Ferguson and Conor McGregor at that point in time. I, I can see that being the, that. Um, the the right avenue for him. I, I can't believe he said that. Eddie Alvarez was on a win streak when he beat Pettis. Um, who else beat Pettis to get a title shot? Max Holloway. Already Max, won. Holloway. Max Holloway went, what, eight, nine fights in a row before fighting Anthony Pettis? That's true. Uh, that's not even a good comparison. He hasn't put, he hasn't put together two, he hasn't put three fights, a three-fight winning streak together lightweight since he's moved back in it. That, that hasn't even happened. And in both the fights, the fight over Jim Miller, there was a very good chance he could lose that because he got into brawling. And the fight against Eddie Alvarez, he was dominating before he started skipping out on his cage IQ and then fought dumb and got dragged into a brawl. I like Poirier. Poirier's a good guy. But the fact of the matter is, in the biggest spots he's been in, that's why me and you picked against him. He's never fought the smartest fight. Against Michael Johnson, this same approach he used could have got him the win. But instead, he bangs it out with him and gets knocked out. When he's fighting Eddie Alvarez, <clears throat> he was running the clinic on him. He gets engaged in a brawl. Like, he constantly had, he has the skills to fight anywhere against any caliber guy. He's one of the very best fighters in the in the division in the world but his inability to fight with controlled aggression and discipline in cage iq has cost him every time he's been close to a title shot so he'd have to beat a gaichi he'd have to beat an eddie alvarez for me to even consider him with a title fight beating him over uh, uh, anthony pettis who's been two and two in his last fight that doesn't impress me anthony pettis is two and two in his last two fights that's a win over that guy isn't good enough to get a title shot. Just like if Anthony Pettis would have beat Dan, uh, Dustin Poirier, that wouldn't have been good enough for a title shot. Neither one of them had extended success over higher ranked guys for them to demand any sort of position as far as being the next title challenger. Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna argue with you there. So if you were in Pettis's camp, how do you rebuild him? He's gone through hell the last couple of years since losing the uh, title. How do you rebuild this guy into the contender that he once was? We've had this conversation before, Pettis, and I'm going to say the same two things. One, his brother Sergio is the better fighter because Anthony's always had this dynamic athleticism 
And more importantly, Anthony's always had the, he's had that durability that Sergio's never had. He's very rarely been stopped in his career, and he's been, he doesn't have the defensive skills. He gets hit a lot. He doesn't get hit all the time, but he gets hit a lot. He takes a lot of big shots, and he generally doesn't get stopped. The thing with Pettis, the problem Pettis has is because he has these abilities, he never rounds out his game. Sergio Pettis had to round out his game because he doesn't have dynamic power. He doesn't have dynamic explosiveness. He doesn't have, he, he doesn't have great durability. He's got a hard ceiling on his physical tools, which means he has to be smarter, more disciplined, more creative, and more varied in how he sets up his offense and how he uses it. Anthony's never had to do that. And the problem Anthony had is they keep on trying to jump the line. When he lost, he should have taken a step back, fought some, fought some easier guys, worked, worked in his new improvements, his new changes in his camp, his new techniques, his new wrestling, striking techniques, slowly worked him in against a lower caliber fighter, and then you go up against another caliber. You work some more stuff in. You go in another caliber. You work some more in. So by the time you fight three, you fight two or three, three or four fights against lower tier lightweights, by the time you get done with that, you've had what? You've probably had close to 12, 18, 12 to 15 months of working on this stuff in camp, getting to use it live in real fights against guys who lack the athleticism, the skill, or the experience take advantage of the fact that you haven't perfected these techniques and then by the time you get to the elite guys you've had about 15 to 18 months of adding in all these changes working in a new approach figuring out what you can do physically and what you can't and now you've got your whole game plan set for when you're going in with a elite guy because now you know exactly what you can do physically exactly what you can't you've shored up your holes strategically you shored them up technically and now you're ready to proceed because you have a fully fleshed out and solidified identi identity Pettis kept trying to get right back to the belt. He fought RDA. He tried to go against Alvarez to get back to the belt. That didn't work. He tried to jump back in against Barboza to get back to the belt. That didn't work. He tried to go to 45. He beat the Bronx to Charles Oliveira. That worked. He jumped right into Pettis to Holloway. He couldn't make the weight. That didn't work. He moves up the lightweight. He fights Miller. He beats Miller. He should have fought somebody a little bit above Miller next. Instead, he jumps all the way to Poirier, a guy who's on the fringe of the elite in the lightweight division based off his record. Once again, his lack of development defensively and his lack of setups and, and development as far as the nuance in his game offensively cost him because he's no longer the dynamic athlete who can just find a submission out of anywhere. Even though he got close to that triangle, I know you saw that triangle and they stopped it to check the blood on his face when he almost Yeah, that was a, that was a weird. Well, first and foremost, the triangle was great. He was going for the armbar to um to kind of secure the finish, but. You know, that's kind of his game plan. He's always had a great triangle on bar type type of combination and off of a setup. I was concerned about the way they stopped it there to yeah. check the blood. That that was odd to me. Um it, it looked like it was locked up and he was It was definitely it definitely looked tight. It definitely looked like it was going to be an opportunity to finish there and it was and it was a weird timing situation for them to select that point when to check the blood and check the um the cut and then on top of that i don't remember off the top of my head but what position did they put him back in when they restarted uh i don't i i forgot i don't think it was anywhere where that guy was in that position of, of the submission again though if i recall because correctly. i was always under the understanding that they're supposed to go right back to the position in which they were where to stop with a time timeout occurred so there is some discrepancy there, and I would have definitely, if I was in Anthony Pettis' corner, I would have raised all type of hell over that situation. I'm, surprised, I'm actually surprised nobody talked about that refereeing gaffe more. I mean, we talk about late stoppages and bad calls. How do you have somebody in a in a cinched-in tight triangle, and then you stop a fight to check blood on their face? I mean, I'm not saying Anthony overall would have won the fight, 
but at any given moment, you have a moment to snatch the fight, and that's Anthony Pettis' whole. That's that's the thing about his style. He doesn't he doesn't have enough structure where he goes through a series of steps to build up to a finish. What Anthony Pettis does is he's throwing something, he throws something, he sees something, a dynamic, two or three kicks to the body crushes you. Some kick off the cage, a flying knee, a big kick to the head. It's always one or two big spots of offense that determine the fight. And it's submission, quick armbar, quick triangle, uh, quick reversal where he gets on top and he finishes you. It's always something quick. It's always some dynamic. It's always something out of the blue. So that falls in line with how he fights. So he had the triangle locked up, and there you go. They get him out of it, and he's not a process fighter. He can't go through one, two, three, four, five to get the finish. He's a guy who goes from one and explodes into something and gets the five. And that, and then the moment he had where that worked, he was basically Poirier was essentially bailed out. And, and so that was once again that shows you the best and the worst about Anthony Pettis. At any point, he's he's not he's not dangerous continuously in a fight. He he doesn't throw enough volume. He's not technically sound enough. But he's dangerous the entirety of a fight because at any point of a fight, he can land a fight-changing blow or he can land a fight-changing submission. He's that kind of fighter. Everybody says they're that kind of fighter. He actually is capable of finishing at any point. But he never works enough, nor does he have enough structure to consistently pressure you and put you in danger from beginning to end of the fight, if you understand the difference. It's hard to explain, but you understand what I'm saying, right? I definitely do. I definitely do. So, so let's, um... he, he just need to take his time. And slowly work his way, but there's there's no short, especially at this age with him losing a step, he can't take any shortcuts. You started at the bottom, and you start working your way up, refine your skills, get your confidence back, get your timing, your confidence, your skill set, your new approach back, just like his brother did when his brother started going. They started him off, had him fighting different levels of guy who could challenge different areas. He passed each test, and then when they got him to an elite, an elite talent, an elite finisher in Moreno, what happened? He had all the tools, so when he got in a dangerous spot, he knew how to work his way out, calmly, get back control of the fight, and take it over. Anthony doesn't know how to do that, and they keep trying to get him into a fight that's going to put him right back into the elite. There's no shortcuts. The shortcuts were in the first part of his career, where he was the best athlete and the most, tough, most durable guy. Now you need to start taking careful, meticulous steps, build him back up, build his confidence up, refine his skill set, and then get into the elite. We're talking about he's at least nine months away. He's at least three fights away. Nine to maybe nine months if he fights regularly, nine months if he fights on and off, fifteen months before he should even face another elite lightweight. Cool, cool, good, good, um, good breakdown there, man. It'll be interesting to see what happens with both of those guys next. But I'm looking forward to seeing if this is the this is the Poirier that I've kind of been waiting to, to see for such a long period of time. Um, we had another bat, like another interesting situation in Matt Brown versus Diego Sanchez coming into the fight. Everyone was looking at the idea of maybe it was uh, Matt Brown's last fight. You know, he was talking about retirement, throwing around the idea, saying that maybe he wasn't going to retire, maybe he was. And then he looks spectacular. He goes out there and he smashes Diego Sanchez with probably one of the most violent elbow finishes I've, I've seen in the sport in a very long time. And I just can't, I don't know if I can continue watching San Diego do this to himself. Um, I'm wondering at what point will the UFC say, you know, enough is enough. He looked amazingly small at welterweight against matt brown so let's talk about two different things there a if you're in matt brown's ear if you have his um if you're in his corner and you know he's you're a confidant of his what would you say to him he's saying that right now a lot of people are saying that maybe he shouldn't hang it up that he should continue fighting would you like to see him uh continue doing the thing or would you rather him go out on this note because a lot of guys do not get to go out on on such a high note as a fan, given his style 
and and he's a, he's an educated brawler. He's an underrated, underappreciated technician in a sense that his he can transition from different ranges and he has a solid skill set. His grappling is underrated because people don't think of him as a grappler. His clinch work, even though his dynamic is underrated, people think of him as a brawler. He's got a lot of technique, a lot of seasoning, a lot of veteran savvy. And he makes for exciting fights because he has the right flaws in the right areas and the strengths in the right areas that almost, almost always give you exciting fights. So from that point of seeing exciting fights and seeing him test up-and-comers and seeing him being a litmus test and knock off a few up-and-comers and get beat by a couple of them, yeah, I want to see him fight because he always puts on good fights. But the fact of the matter is, um, his, the, I've t and I said this before to people, when you have a style that's based on volume and physicality and durability and that kind of grinding pressure, it's tough on you because you have to train at a certain pace, at a certain physicality, with a certain amount of mental and physical effort to get in the condition and to have, to get in the condition to take the punishment you're going to take, to fight the pace you're going to take, fight at, and to condition your body for the punishment you're dishing out. Because when you're throwing that many shots and you're not a knockout puncher, you're going four or five rounds. You're going three whole rounds. You're working every second of every minute, landing shots, getting hit by shots, delivering a di different series of shots. So that wears on your body from both ends, from the training and in the fighting. So those styles don't age very well. And Matt Brown, he's already in decline. He got knocked out by Donald Cerrone. Everybody keeps telling me Donald Cerrone's an elite welterweight. Donald Cerrone's not an elite welterweight. He hasn't beaten an elite welterweight since he moved up. Donald Cerrone is a blown up lightweight, blown up, yeah, blown up lightweight who happened to get the right matches as a welterweight that have enabled him to put himself in position as an elite welterweight. When he's fought elite talent, he's lost. When he fought Matt Brown, he knocked him clean out. Matt Brown's durability isn't there like it used to be. His ability to recover isn't there like it used to be. Knocking out Diego Sanchez with a dynamic elbow, it looks great and it's impressive in the sense that most guys don't have the skills to do it. But knocking out Diego Sanchez stopped being impressive about three years ago. It's just not that big a deal. Aliquinta stopped him. Didn't Ricardo Lamas stop him as well? People, people drop, stop, and knock Digo out on a regular basis. And he's fighting in a weight class that he, that's not optimum for his style or his approach. And he's trying a new style because he, he doesn't, he's, he's decided after all these years, I'm going to change my style because I've taken too much punishment. As if trying to make a humongous technical change, given limited physical tools, and years and years of abuse and punishment from training and partying and fighting is going to enable you to make that, flip that switch overnight. It's impressive because it looks good, but you have to take into context who he did it against and at what stage that guy was in his career. Diego is not elite. He's not even a fringe contender. And one of his biggest tools, his chin and his physicality, don't exist at the wake at 170. So all these people were telling him he looks so good and he should keep fighting. If he did that against a uh, Colby Covington, even a Damian Maya, hell, even a Neil Magny, we'd have a case. But he did it against Diego Sanchez, which means it, it doesn't mean very much. I mean, a win over D that's like me going out and rear naked choking some random guy on the street and being like, yeah, I can fight in the UFC. The skill level, the conditioning, it's just too, and I'm not even a good grappler. It's just there's such a gap between them and anybody else that it doesn't matter. Yeah, so I mean. Him, him, him beating Diego, I mean, it was impressively violent. But did that really impress you? Were you really impressed to see him beat up Diego? Was that like, oh my God, I can't believe, I didn't see that coming. I mean, everybody who's a Diego fan, that's their biggest fear, that Diego was going to get knocked cold for like the fourth time in a row. 
it was it was a highlight real finish to me. It was definitely something that I was like surprised. I jumped out of my seat when I saw it happen. Uh, even though there was a glitch in the uh, show at the time, I was still like excited to see it go down. But my concern immediately turned to Diego because you know I don't want to see this anymore. I think that his time is done. I think he should kind of walk away from the sport right now. And if I was Matt, if I was in Matt Brown's corner, I know it's going. It's always difficult for fighters to walk away and walk away. Um, at this point in time because they feel like they, they can keep going. I mean, how many guys have we seen actually walk away with a victory? We saw Chris Lytle do it. I mean, George GSP did it the first time. But who really else have we seen walk away with their hands held, held high? I mean, it no, happens. We haven't. BJ so Penn. I mean, that's, that's, that's a key example right there. I'm surprised you haven't heard about him trying to make a comeback. They, but I think that it would be interesting to see what's next for, for Matt Brown if he does decide to walk away. Um, and as for Diego Sanchez, I wonder if the UFC is going to help him walk away, whether he wants to or not. Uh, well, the one thing, in the, and, and I'm not trying to bag on the UFC or, or bag on you, you're making a legitimate point. But remember how everybody was saying Bigfoot should just retire? Mm-hmm. But the thing about it is we all say that. But once again, who's going to pay Bigfoot's light bill? Who's paying Diego's light bill? Who's paying for his kids? Who's paying for his wife? Who's paying his car note? We don't have to do that. It's easy to say retire. But if he had better options financially, don't you think he would have taken them by now? If he could make the same kind of money anywhere, don't you think he'd already, be t- he'd already do that? He doesn't have an exit plan. And as far as I know, Jackson Wink doesn't have him on as a coach. They don't have him on as an investor in the thing. Once the fighting stops, he's got to find a new way of making money. And, and mind you, I think he should retire too. But once again, we don't have to deal with any of the problems that come with him retiring. He has to deal with them. We don't. We can say retire, and then it's like, oh, well, he should have saved his money. Yeah, he should have. He could have. He didn't. So what's the solution now? We already know what happened before. What's your solution for the problems he's facing right now? I don't have a solution for him, and I can't believe that some of this isn't money-oriented. If There was a story written by Jonathan Snowden, and, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of heart-wrenching to see that he's having these kind of financial, he's having some of the problems and some of the things he's gone through. And you, you know for a fact, MMA fighters don't make life-altering money, life-altering money historically. So what happens to Diego when he retires? How does he pay his bills? How does he take care of his thing? Nobody has an answer for me yet when they say that. They're like, well, you know, that's his problem. He's an adult. Okay, cool. We know that. But what's his solution? What's his way of making a living until, the, until things come through for him? Yeah, that's a hard conversation. I think someone's going to have to answer. Um, it's going to have to be him. Yeah. Uh, let's let's look at and, oh yeah one one more one more note I, one more question I have, you know how we talk about how long the UFC is going to let him fight right? Yeah. How come nobody's asked how long is Greg Jackson and Mike Winklejohn going to let him keep trotting him out there? They know he's been knocked out of hunt. You're the ones training him. When are y'all going to say enough's enough? Because if the UFC cuts him, he'll just go to another organization. When is his team going to say enough's enough? Yeah, that's the key. Um, that's the key conversation starter right there. I definitely think that it's it's worth a um, worth a, worth a question, and it's worth a point bringing up. Yeah, I'm not trying to be. Not, I'm not trying to be harsh. I just, you know, it's like if if we're good friends and some stranger is going to tell you you need help, I know you. Why am I not telling you you need help? How am I sitting there letting you taking you out to the bar, like if you had this problem, taking you out to the bar to get drunk, knowing you have a drinking problem, and then I expect a stranger to be the one to stop you? When I know you, we have a relationship, and I ain't doing nothing about it. All good questions there. All good questions. Um, let's continue our way down the card, and let's look at the 
um, Clay Guida, Joe Lozon, where Clay Guida got his first stoppage since I believe it was um, 2006, some, something ridiculous, his first stoppage in a ridiculous amount of time when he smashed Joe Lozon with a first round TKO. Uh, he's another guy, man. Both of these guys here, you know, we, I was talking about this during the, um, the watch party with Luke Thomas, where we were like, are these two guys that we want to see continue doing this? And they, I don't know. I, I almost couldn't answer that question because Guida looked so good in this quick finish. Was that more akin to his skills developing or was that because of Lozon's on such a decline? What would you do next with both of these guys? Well, the thing about it is, um, how can I put this? Guida, if I recall right, he, he won his last fight before this one. And even though he's lost some fights, he hasn't been getting knocked out left and right. And he hasn't really been getting dominated in the sense that he's just been manhandled. He's been outskilled. He might have been out-athlete. How many times can you say that you've seen um, Clay Guida and he's just really just outright gotten smoked? That hasn't happened very often in my, and from what I've seen. It's just been a lack of skill or lack of athleticism. But I haven't seen him just get crushed like Diego Sanchez or, or knocked out left and right like Matt Brown or uh, Jake Ellenberger. He's still been tough. He's still been able to set a pace. He's still been able to to be competitive. I mean, he almost, he was fighting Brian Ortega and that fight could have went either way until Ortega got that last second submission. But prior to that, it wasn't like Ortega was just doing work on him and styling on him. That never happened. So Guida still has a lot more left in my opinion. He can still compete. I don't know if he can be elite, but he can still beat guys. Now the win against, the win against um, Lozon, part of that has to do with the fact that Lozon isn't who he used to be. He's been through a lot of wars. He's been through a lot of fight night, fight of the nights. He's taken a lot of beatings, especially in his last, what, five to seven fights? Even when he's won, it's been very exhausting, very bloody, very high-impact fights. So he, and, and Joe Lozon has talked about retirement for years. I don't think he's wholly committed to fighting anyways. And I definitely know physically he, his body isn't standing up to the abuse as much as it used to. It's just not. He's physically incapable of taking those kind of beatings. And if you, t- if you heard Lozon in previous argument ar- articles, Lozon's repeatedly said, I don't want to be in the fight night. I don't want to take that punishment. I don't want to do this. You know what I'm saying? Like, he doesn't want to be involved in these kind of fights that he, can- he keeps on finding himself involved in. Personally, he needs to be thinking about retirement. Clay Guida, he can still compete. He's still a fringe contender. He's still got some name value, and he can still perform at a certain level. And coming off this kind of win, it's going to kind of re-energize him and put him in a position to move up, move up the ranks if he so chooses. But um, Lozon, I think Lozon's hit his wall. I don't think Lozon has much more to offer. I think he's gotten the full extent out of his abilities, but his limited athleticism, his, 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 uh, fit, his striking, which is more based on his aggression and physicality, it, it's not there anymore. And without, his, without top-end athleticism, he doesn't have the ability to control where the fight goes or to keep a fight where it goes. And he doesn't have the stamina either. After about a, a good round and a half of hard fighting, he falls apart. And that's been the book on him for the past couple of years. And he lacks the athleticism or the technical skills on the feet to do anything about it. I think he's hit his wall. I think he's done all he can. I think he needs to go into coaching and find his next step in life. And he's another guy. He's a guy with actual avenue. He's intelligent. He's got IT skills. He runs his own school. He doesn't have to do this. I guess he does it because he likes to, but he's just not very good at it anymore. I mean... He didn't beat Martin, Marcin Held. He didn't beat Jim Miller. And now he got finished by Clay Guida. I mean, what what else is there to say for him? Yeah, that's all very true there, man. I'm not going to um, disagree that at, at all there. So 
I don't want to spend too much time on this fight because I wanted to definitely definitely talk about the Marlon Morales Don John Dotson fight where Marlon got a split decision victory over Dotson and got his first UFC win. I think that this was a very tough bout for him to be taken at this point in time. Uh, let's talk about this here. First and foremost, who did you have the fight score for? Um, I, I, I thought it could be a draw, but I figured Morris was going to win. I don't think, I don't know that Dotson did enough to, to lose it, but he, he didn't do enough to win it. He, he, he regressed. He, he wasn't doing the things he had been doing in the past couple fights. He started going back to the old John Dotson, and uh, that's essentially what cost him. That fight was there for him to win if he would have moved his hands and applied some con- consistent counters and pressure. He didn't do either. He was just sleepwalking, trying to land the left, trying to get that left hand going the whole fight, trying to walk him into it, trying to lead into it. He wasn't showing any volume. He wasn't showing any activity, and he wasn't showing any variety. He just made himself as predictable as possible, and he got exposed for it. So let's kind of break down both of these guys here because on one side we have um, we have Marlon here who was a you know one probably a, a big prospect who his signing went under the radar and he had a very tough fight against Rafael Sunsau who looked good on Saturday as well getting a big big knockout stoppage over um, Matthew Lopez night against the Sunsau he's, Every, he's not easy yeah. work for anybody. Everybody does, and I, and I wrote about this this week, but it's almost surprising that he's not a bigger name in the title contention uh, picture right now. I mean, hell, he has a win over TJ, so I know his style is kind of difficult to watch sometimes. That's another story for another day, but even with his knockout win, people still aren't hyping him up to see him face to face, to see him face TJ, to see him get that fight against uh, to replace Dominic Cruz against Jimmy Rivera. No one really kind of cares about him, and that's unfortunate to see. So... Well, he, he is a Brazilian fighter in the UFC, so you know what that means. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm not, yeah I mean, you know how that – we're going to probably talk about – I don't want to talk about Kobe Covington. I haven't decided if we're going to talk about him next. But um, anyway, back to Morales here. Marlon, he yeah. looked really good in his win. He looked a lot better. I, I was kind of concerned about this fight. I thought it was going to be a tough fight for him to take, but he looked good. He came out with a victory. What do you do with him next? Do you put him in there against Jimmy Rivera if, if he can't can get cleared? Or do you give him like an Aljamain Sterling? Yes. Like, like, you can put do? him in against Rivera. I mean, athletically, but he hasn't. He hasn't been. Dodson's a good win, but Dodson himself in his last two fights, this would make him one and two in his last two fights at the weight class. That's not particularly impressive. That's not what he was hoping for when he moved up. And Dodson, and it wasn't even an. It wasn't even an exciting fight. He's been competitive in both his fights, but he hasn't been anywhere near really dominant at any point in the fight against Asuncion. In the fight against in the fight against Dotson, he wasn't really dominant. He didn't really do anything that really stood out. He just did more than Dotson did, which isn't that impressive because Dotson wasn't doing a damn thing. I think you move him in against maybe a maybe a Carlos Almeida. Who else is at that weight division? Maybe even a Cody Garbrandt because Cody's gonna have to build his way back up. I guess Jimmy Rivera, but I can't imagine Jimmy Rivera taking that risky a fight. I, I can't imagine him taking that fight. I don't think it's in his his opinion worth his while. If I'm uh, if I'm if I'm Marlon, I might go try to get a fight with Joe Soto. I might even try to see if I can get a fight with Cody Garbrandt. I just don't think Jimmy Rivera is going to take it. I think Rivera is going to try to sit out and see if he can force the title shot by just waiting his time out. I don't think he's taking any any other fights. But somebody around that that 13 to 15 rank, that's what he needs to do, and he needs to he needs to put together some impressive wins. Right now, all the most impressive fights we've seen him perform or against second and third tier guys in the professional fighters league. We haven't seen him do it against the best of the best. Against 
the best athletes he's faced and the most experienced fighters he's faced, he hasn't looked dominant. Against those third and fourth tier guys, he looked like he was a potential Hall of Famer. Against Dodson, did he look like a Hall of Fame fighter? Mm-mm. Did he, against Asuncio, did he look like a Hall of Fame fighter? Mm-mm. I, I got to see him do a little bit more than what he's done against top, te- top competition. All right, that's, I mean, I'm not going to disagree with that at, at all, man. That's definitely some key breakdown there. What would you do with, uh, with him next, then? Who would you put him against? Like, if we look at if we look at the rankings real quick in the bantamweight division, Marlon is sitting in the seventh position. Ahead of him is Brian Caraway, John Lineker, Jimmy Rivera, Rafael Sunsal, Dominic Cruz, and Cody Garbrandt. Right below him in the top ten is Aljamain Sterling, Ja Donson, and Thomas Almeida. Out of that I group, take, I take Sterling, Almeida, maybe even somebody like a Joe Soto who's won some fights, and give him give him a fight where he can really showcase what he can do. Because some of the guys who are ranked underneath him, they're not name fighters, but they're tough outs. Joe Soto gave T.J. Dillshaw a very tough fight, and if I recall correctly, he's like on a two or three fight win streak. That would be a good win. Uh, him against Almeida would be a good fight. I just don't think Rivera. I don't know if or Rivera. Brian Caraway. Car- yeah, there you go. I was going to say Caraway. Caraway would be a good fight. But once again, Caraway is trying to find certain fights. He wants name fights. Beating, Mar- beating Marlon doesn't get you, doesn't guarantee you anything. I found I'll beat him. What happened to him? He didn't. He was no closer to a title shot. He's fighting a guy who wasn't even ranked in the top top 15, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Uh, so, so what does that do for him? No, I mean, um, Matthew Lopez was ranked in the, in, the, in the top ten. I think he, I think no, he was number twelve. Now he's at number fourteen. Um, now that he lost to a, a Sun Sal. So he's he's fighting. He beat he beat. He gave Dillashaw a tough fight. He beat Marlon, and his reward for that was the fighter got fighting the twelfth ranked bantamweight in his division. I mean, I'm not going to disagree with you at all, man. That's so, definitely so, how. It, so there's there's no reason for Jimmy Rivera to be fight him. Garbrandt might be willing to just to get back in there. Garbrandt might be willing to take it. But if I'm if I'm Marlon, I might go for a Joe Soto. I'll call out Brian Caraway. I don't think Caraway's going to take it. Maybe Thomas Almeida or Aljamain Sterling always need the fight. Aljamain Sterling would take that fight. Yeah, he's definitely but, jockeying for a, a fight right now, too, as well. Yeah, he, need, he needs a fight. He needs a fight over somebody the UFC's invested in. It's somebody who's got a bit of a name. And Marlon's not the biggest name, but he's available. So, yeah, if I was, if I was Marlon, I'd go Sterling, Caraway, maybe Almeida, and as an alternate, Joe Soto. You know Joe Soto will take the fight. Of course he will. Of course he will. So, what else stood out from you for you um, at UFC Fight Night One Twenty? Like I said, it was a good card from top to bottom. I definitely enjoyed everything that I saw there. What else stood out for you? I mean, Andre Arlovski got a big win. Um, there was a couple of other highlight reel finishes. Uh, what else did you see from this show that kind of? I'll tell you two things that stood out to me. One, Duffy versus Vic. They resigned. Duffy had a chance to go to Bellator. A chance to go to stay with the UFC. The UFC did not sign Joe Duffy to beat, and I know Vic's a good fighter. He's gotten better. He's improving. He's a big guy. He's long. He's got, he's got conditioning. He's got stamina. He, he's physical. He throws a lot of variety. I know this, but the UFC did not sign Joe Duffy to lose to a guy like, like Vic. They didn't sign him to get beat by a guy like Vic. I'm sorry. Everybody in the UFC knows it. I know it. You know it. They signed him because they thought he could help them break into the in- European into the European market, and he could be a potential star. And the two fights he's had against anybody with any note or any depth of skill, he has not been able to beat those guys. 
he lost to Poirier in a dramatically one-sided fight. And then in a the fight he, he started out fasting against Vic, Vic turned the, turned the tables on him, started pressuring him, beating him up, and eventually just put him away. So Duffy, this, the re-signing with the UFC, it hasn't gone very well for him. And now he's way at the back of the line at lightweight. And he's going to have to really work hard to rebuild himself to get to the position he wants. But given the, the salary and the fact they resigned him, I don't know that uh, I don't know that he's going to get that chance. I don't know that they're going to give him any easy fights. And lightweight is tough enough to win. But definitely trying to move back up is going to be even harder. So, I mean, it was a... Man, it's going to be crazy hard now at, at this point in time. And I think that the, we're just at an interesting part point in MMA where fighters aren't looking to take those big – they aren't looking to take risk. Um, can you turn me down a little bit on your, your side? Yes. But they're not, they're not taking as many risks as they used to in the past, which I understand. You know, guys are trying to hold on to their spot. They're trying to make their money. And they're trying to put themselves in a position to have longevity in, in the sport, but it's it's causing a kind of a backlog at the top of these divisions because fighters are only like, you know, I'm only taking fights that'll put me in a position to get to a a, a title shot. You don't have guys. We talked about it before. Like, it's the fight business. They 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 used to say they're warriors, they're soldiers. They die for this, they do it for free. Nobody says that anymore. It's a business. Nobody says that anymore. The most money. And I get it, and I mean I totally get it. It makes it makes sense, and it's something that I don't disagree with. So with that in mind, let's kind of hop into some of the news from this week. We actually um, some, some news broke right as this fight start, uh, or excuse me, right as our show started today, where we got Holly Holm and Chris Cyborg is now official for UFC fight night, or excuse me, UFC two nineteen. Uh, did you see that news that came across? It broke at like eight forty five today, but it looks like they're they are now fighting. I heard rumors, I didn't I didn't see it, but. People were telling me that, that the fight was was made. Yeah, they just they just announced it today. Um, probably about eight thirty, eight eight forty five. First thoughts on this fight. There, what do you see, and um, what do you think of the outcome will will be? Say it again. I said, what are your first thoughts in in seeing this fight on paper? Um, everybody tells me this is going to be Cyborg's toughest fight. It's not going to be her physically toughest. Mentally, it'll be tough because once again, she's facing someone who has the skills and the athleticism to attack her in a way that most girls usually don't. Um, like when she fought Avenger, she hadn't really fought a girl who was really a wrestle-heavy kind of pressure, physical type person. And when she fought, uh, and then she fights Home, Home isn't a brawler. Home isn't a girl who's going to look to get a, land a home run strike. Home's the type of fighter who gets by on movement, athleticism, length, and distance management, and throwing a lot of volume. So Home is, a, is, a te- is technically challenging. And so we're, it's going to be interesting to see how how Cyborg fights a person who's big, who's strong, and who's mobile, and who's not just going to be there for her to hit. So I'm I'm pretty interested in seeing how this fight is is, is going to go um, because people have been talking about it for years. You know, this is kind of ever ever since Home knocked out uh, Rousey. Obviously, this is the fight that kind of took that that the dream the quote unquote dream fight that took that fight's position. I'm interested in seeing it happen. I'm definitely, especially with UFC 219 as a whole, because that event was struggling from a card standpoint. So I'm, I'm interested in seeing what else they put around this showcase, because it's going to be one of the last shows of the year. But on, I mean, 
I think it'll be an interesting technical fight. Uh, I'm not. Um, I'm not ready to pick a winner right now at this point in time. Have we? Have it'll we ever seen technical. home get hit by the type by someone with the type of power that Cyborg brings to the table? No, the closest we saw is when. Um, well, Rondami is supposed to be known as a hitter. I actually say that Ronda Rousey, even though people her striking wasn't top end, she was actually a very powerful striker. Even though she didn't use top end technique and accuracy, Ronda Rousey could hit. She could hit hard. And when she hit home with that check with an early leaping hook, she had she had home on skates. Home's home's chin isn't even in boxing, it wasn't impenetrable. You can get to home. And to be actually honest, as far as the all round technical striking, I, I want to say that Cyborg's a little bit better. Holmes' footwork and her ability to move is fine. Her kicks are really good. But Holmes', Holmes hands aren't really good. People keep telling me how good a boxer Holmes was. I don't think they've seen her box before. Her technical, slick, defensive, counterboxing isn't really great. If it was, her hands would be much better when you see her fight in MMA fights. And if you notice, she's not exactly the sharpest like boxer, pure boxer, when it comes to... To, to fighting in mixed martial arts. She's good. You can tell she's got skill and experience, but she doesn't put in together all these slick combinations and counters that you expect from somebody with her pedigree. Not with her uh, hands. Her kicks are much better than her hands. Yeah, her, her, her kicks are, are definitely what she's known for. I'm, I'm interested in seeing how this fight definitely goes down because I'm poised to see if Cyborg is going to be uber aggressive as she usually is and if Holmes footwork can kind of help her avoid that for 25 minutes and we'll see because i don't see home stopping cyborg i see her outpointing no. her towards a victory so um we'll see i'm, I'm interested in, i haven't looked yet but i'm interested in seeing what the opening betting odds are for this fight well, as well, well too there's there's a couple things just before we get off this topic holly home was concerned about the counters from misha tate she had a hard time walking down on misha tate because misha tate had some counter hooks Counter hooks off her. Misha Tate was able to pressure Holly Holm to a degree, and Misha Tate, who's a who's a worse wrestler than Cyborg, and a lesser athlete, was able to take her down. That's not a good sign for Cyborg. When you have a bigger, stronger, more durable, more technical striker, who also is a better grappler than you. This, in a lot of ways, the only thing that makes this difficult is the style that Holm uses, where she moves around, she moves in and out, she throws a lot of volume. When you actually look at the 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 skill sets, the pure skill sets. Cyborg's a better wrestler. Cyborg's a better grappler. And even though Holmes a better kicker, as far as strike for strike, Cyborg's probably got the better hands in her. So technically on paper, it's a really one-sided matchup. The only thing that makes it difficult is the style of fight that Holmes uses, not, not so much her skill in the style of fight. I've seen too many people land on Holly Holmes. Raquel Pennington, um, Durandami, Shevchenko. A lot of people have put hands on, on Holmes, including Misha Tate. And Cyborg is actually getting really good work. She's one of the best athletes, and she's one of the biggest hitters, and physically one of the strongest girls in mixed martial arts. What happens if she takes Holly home down? What if she decides to say, just screw it, I'm going to take her down? I mean, it's, it's going to be crazy, man. I'm looking forward to seeing this fight definitely from um, top to bottom. I want to move on to some of the other news pieces from this week and i'm gonna leave the um uh, i'm gonna leave this one to, to last but let's talk about anderson silva's failed drug test because that came out on saturday as well he's actually off of the ufc fight night 20 um 22 maybe uh event in shanghai and he's been replaced by michael bisbee 
So there's two different things we want to talk about there. First, we have Anderson Silva. This is how how tarnished is his legacy at this point in time? This is the second failed drug test. I mean, people are like throwing his legacy out the window now, and I don't blame them, you know, because some some individuals have that standard of understanding of how steroids have, have impacted the game of performance enhancing drugs. What are your thoughts on Silva's failed test and how does this damage his legacy? We'll talk about Michael Bisbee in a second. Well it's it's very it's very it's very damaged for one, but in the same instance it's not because Silva was never caught before he had that injury. After that break he had, a lot of people kind of understood why he might use a, a performance enhancer to heal him, to get him back in shape because he was older, he had a horrific injury, and he was coming back off that. So a lot of people just gave him a uh, escape out. This hurts more because most people will give you one. Could have been an accident, and coming off the injury he had, it's justifiable. But now, with a second one, it just looks like he's an old guy who can't compete, and he's no longer, he's trying to do whatever he can to hold on. And I don't, I don't know where he comes from at this point. It just puts George St. Pierre in even a rarer air because no matter what people said about GSP, he never got caught. And this really hurts Anderson because Anderson, it, Anderson was thought of as a true martial artist, a guy who did the right way. And it just seems like he's just another mixed martial art fighter who's trying to hang on to his glory days and trying to get an edge. Through an, an edge that doesn't exist with hard work and his skill and his experience. It seems like it's almost dishonorable. Instead of using what you have to do to advantage, your your experience, your skills, your durability, you're resorting to what the lesser martial artist and the lesser fighter does, which is trying to find drugs and avenues to get you in a leg up. And hey, it's, it's just a bad look. I don't even know how to really kind of put it in a, into perspective. You know, I compare it to the steroid era of baseball, and it's like, do we look at baseball any differently then than we do now? I mean, I think some purists do, but in reality, I don't think people kind of look at it any differently. Yeah, you have guys like uh, Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, and others who may never get into the Hall of Fame. You know, that's one thing, but... MMA doesn't have that. Uh, MMA is kind of in a different place. It's, it's more of a sports and entertainment avenue like the WWE, so it's kind of diff different to look at that. Um, if, But the thing is, we have to be willing to understand that Anderson Silva isn't the only one. And I think that as we as more and more fighters fade and they kind of walk away from the game and kind of open up, it'll be interesting, it'll be interesting to see who talks about uh, op who openly talks about PED uses in the sport? It's funny because on my desk right now, I have this book called Blood Sport that talked about uh, Alex Rodriguez and the quest to, to end baseball steroid era. But it talks about man, a lot of guys were using back then, and we'll probably never know who was clean and who wasn't. We've seen guys like Josh Barnett, Vitor Belfort, failed tests left and right. Wandre Silva did run from tests. We've seen so many different situations. And with USADA in play, now most guys are almost guilty until proven innocent. So you have to really kind of uh, curb how angry you, angry you get about fighters failing tests now. Granted, there are still a couple, a very few fighters that I would be surprised if, if they failed a, a drug test. I'm not going to name the names. So I don't want to jinx myself. But I I'm not feel anger, but there's an insulin when you thought everybody's cheating and you just get caught. It, I mean, even though we think that people do this, the fact is you're on record as being caught. 
No, exactly. What somebody could say, GSP, you've been cheating for years. You've been cheating for years. Show me the test I failed. Show me where I failed. You don't. You you, you can't show me that I failed. Then what are we talking about? Anderson, I totally agree Anderson, with you there, man. Anderson, not once but twice got caught. Twice, twice. That's the most dangerous part. And I really, and I saw that he released a statement yesterday. I really don't even care. I don't want to hear it. You know, I don't even want to read it. I mean, I don't care. I, I'm not. I'm not even. I'm not even saying he's to blame. I, I'm not saying I'm mad at him. But at this point in his career, it's not even at the the peak of your career. So now, even if you're just doing it because of age and because of injuries, it affects. There's a cast of shadow over your entire career. And I don't understand why you want to risk that as one of the few guys who's known as a honest, pure, legitimate martial artist. Why would you want to waste that? I mean, it's crazy, man. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous there. So um, with that in mind, though, Michael Bisping is now taking his place on, what, three weeks notice? I mean, yeah. he just fought at USC 218 or whatever the hell that event was, 217. He just fought there. And now he's going in to fight Kelvin Gast um, Gastelum in China. Now there's so many different questions there. How do he? How did, how did he get cleared for this fight? Again, why isn't someone saying to him, you know, maybe you don't want to take this? You know, you should. He's already openly talked about retiring in March in London, so maybe that's what he should be focusing on. But how did this occur? And it it makes me worried about what these clearance tests really are like and how easily it was for him to just call up Dana White and say, hey, I'll step in and take Anderson Silva's spot. Um, yeah, I, I was kind of a little concerned about that as well. I mean, he didn't look super durable in his last fight, which was very recent, and I don't know how they they managed to clear this fight. It just seems so difficult that you just, I mean, I know he didn't have any injuries, but how, how do you have a guy go into another fight with a bigger hitter and a younger guy as of just getting dropped by a blown-up welterweight who's past his prime. It, it seems really reckless. It seems like something where things could go really wrong. And if they do, there'd be no way to explain it. You know, let's say he gets seriously hurt in that fight. How do you explain it? How do you explain a guy coming off a loss and a loss that the loss he, the kind of loss he had, and fighting another young, strong, hungry, physical, punishing fighter? I mean, man, like this is this is but, crazy, isn't it? I, I will say one thing though. Michael, you can tell Michael Bisping is in full, full spin mode with his career. He knows that ducking those guys and being a champion, his championship run was kind of a sham, and he he caught a lot of flack for it, and it really hurt his his standing. So what does he do after fighting GSP? Turns right back around, signs for this fight. So almost immediately, the whole question about about um, Bisping not being a real fighter, not having any heart, that goes away right away instantaneously. He's right back to being the guy who never turns the fight down, the guy who's always looking for the best challenge, the guy who never says no. And just like that, his reputation is almost 100% repaired. One fight. By taking one fight. I mean, I'm not going to disagree with you there, man. It's, it's crazy. What are your thoughts about Bisbee when he retires? I mean, I think we kind of talked about this last time, too, as well. But I, and, and we will probably talk about it again in, in, the, in the future. But it'll be interesting to see what his legacy will be, how he's talked about. And um, I think moments such as this will kind of help shape that. I, I always wasn't the biggest Bisbee fan. I mean, he's, he's definitely come, kind of come around to not even myself, but a, a lot of people overall. So it'll be interesting to kind of see how these type of moments impact what the story is about him overall. Yeah, I still think he's going to be seen as an overachiever. 
but he's going to be seen as a guy who rose to the challenge and overcame the limits of his physical skills and, and um, where he started off. I mean, he started off, how many guys came from tough and made it to a world title fight? How many guys that won titles this late into their careers? Very few, right? And how many guys with his limited physical skill set have come up and beat the caliber of fighters he's beaten to get to the place he's gotten to? He beat, he had his biggest win at the tail end of his career. Henderson, Silva, Rockhold. All at the tail end of his career. He's getting the biggest fight at the tail end of his career. He's like a, the definition of per perseverance because he kept fighting, he never gave up, and essentially through hard work and dedication, he overcame every single one of his limitations as far as his record goes and as far as his physical school, his physical tools go. And, and how, how can you not, how can you not admire a guy like that? How many guys actually end up doing that? Yeah, that's definitely um, some uh, good breakdown there. I mean, how do you see this fight against Kelvin Gastelum going, too? Because that's a very tough bout. Gastelum is not a huge middleweight, but, I mean, this is a dangerous fight for him in any, in, in any shape or form. Um, I just don't know. This being, he, he still works at a pretty decent pace, but he doesn't seem as quick as he used to be. He does, his pace isn't quite as, quite as there. His movement, to me, isn't there. And I don't think his durability is there. I, I mean, he's he got dropped by... He keeps saying George St. Pierre didn't hurt him, but he got stumbled and he got dropped. And he kept saying I could get up from George anytime I wanted to. Mm, maybe he could, maybe he couldn't. I, I don't see it that way. And now he's fighting a big, strong, more athletic, and more durable guy than George St. Pierre. He didn't have, um, Gesslin doesn't have his seasoning. He doesn't have his, his depth of skills. But as far as athleticism, physicality and strength and punching power, it's not even close. There's a huge advantage in Gastelum's favor. So uh, I tend to believe that Gastelum should win and, and win handily. I don't know that Bisping is a good enough wrestler, grappler to finish him. And I don't, I don't know that he can keep the pace necessary to keep Gastelum off him for three rounds or five rounds or whatever it is. I mean, I'm not saying he can't beat him, but the, the Bisping I've seen in the last couple fights, he's not going to have enough to beat Gastelum unless Gastelum totally takes him for granted. Do you, what, what do you think that this type of win would do for Gaston's career? Not much. Gaston's made his whole career of beating up on, on past their prime fighters. I mean, what, Vitor Belfort, the uh, zombie Tim Kennedy, you know, I mean, I mean, he was fighting Anderson Silva, another guy on the tail end of his career who was physically declined. The one time he fought a guy who was somewhat near his prime, even in the loosest sense of it, was Chris Weidman and he lost. So, I mean, he hadn't really beaten any legitimate middleweight since he's come to the division. He's beaten up on a bunch of old men. He basically did what Chris Weidman did to get to the title, beat up on a bunch of old guys. I need to see what Gaslam does when he faces a guy of comparable athleticism and youth. That's when I'm going to find out how good he is or is it. Beating up on a bunch of guys who don't have the cardio or the ability to recover doesn't impress me. Being, being another guy who beat up Vitor Belfort, how impressive is that at this stage? Is it really that impressive? Beating Tim Kennedy after almost two years out of the cage, how impressive is that? I mean, I'm not going to disagree with you. There's definitely some, um, uh, not harsh words, but it's definitely a one way to look at that situation that we have going there. I, I just, I just think it'll be, it's, it's a fight that I guess I needed to get another win. Come, he needed to get back into the cage so I'm, I'm excited to see him compete but I, I think that this is kind of a, a holdover fight that will keep him active keep him getting paid but um, not necessarily move him up the ladder at any um, existential pace yeah 
So it, it, it keeps him busy. It keeps him active. It gives him a name win, but that win over Michael Bisping doesn't mean as much as it did two years ago. Doesn't mean as much as it did three. So let's see. Let's see. Let's see. What else do we have? We have Tyron Woolley and Nate Diaz. News of this fight is brewing slowly for the welterweight title, and this is the fight that we may be forced to watch that no one asked for. Um, unfortunately, this is going to hurt Tyron Woodley's cachet as a champion because I mean, you know, like a hypocrite. Makes him look like a hypocrite in a division as deep as welterweight. He takes a fight against someone who hasn't won as a welterweight. It was one in three. As as a welterweight, I mean, this is this is such a bad situation for Woodley, and I, it's unfortunate that he's going down this route because even I can't defend this. I mean, it's it's so it's just so bad. The thing that irritates me is he said George St. Pierre came back for the money. He's ducking me. Well, George St. Pierre for like six, seven years took on every single welterweight there was, whether they were big money fight or not. He took on everybody. Tyron Woodley's had the belt for what a year and a half. And already he's going to the money fight. George St. Pierre earned the right to get a money fight by fighting every contender, big name or little, just defending the belt. Tyrone Woodley's been trying to get a money fight from day one. And he keeps on calling, well, Conor McGregor wants a money fight. He won't do this. George St. Pierre is ducking me. You've been doing the same thing since you got the title. Before he got the title, fight the number one contender. Fight the number one contender. As soon as he got it, he called that GSP. He called that Nick Diaz. He called that Conor McGregor. He's no different. He was one way before he got the title. He's a completely different other way once he got the title, much like most of these fighters are. And it's, it's not disappointing to me because Tyrone Willie's got to pay for his family. He's got to pay for his kids. He shouldn't have to care what I think. He's doing what's best for him, his career, his business. But as far as being an honorable, competitive champion, he's not. He's taking the easy route out. In the same way he cracked on Conor McGregor and everybody else, he needs to hold himself to that standard, which he won't, but he needs to hold himself to that standard because that's what he did. Man, it's so it's such. This is I can't even continue like to say this, but this is such a bad fight for him. Even I saw the news bit of him calling Nate Diaz scared to take the fight. I'm like, I don't give a like, I don't give a fuck. Really, I, I just really don't because it's 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 such. He needs to be fighting Kobe Covington. He needs to be fighting the Darren Tills, the Carmont, the Carmont. Or Earth Miles, he needs to be fighting those guys to build his legacy. Like you said, GSP fought everyone they put in front of him. He fought, he fought Thiago Alves when he was his most dangerous. He fought John Fitch when he was his most dangerous. He fought Josh Koscheck twice when he was the most dangerous. He fought Jake Shields. He fought everybody that they put in front of him, and he defeated them. I mean, what you can't build a legacy like that without doing that type of work. And right now, Tyron Woodley is not doing that type of work. He got off on the right start fighting fighting Stephen Thompson twice but and then fighting Damian Maya, but this is going down the wrong route. But the thing is, he didn't want to take those fights. He took those because the other fights weren't available. The whole time he was screaming, when he had to fight Thompson again, oh, Damian Maya should get, Damian Maya should get the next fight. As soon as it was Damian Maya, he was calling out GSP. He was saying, I'll meet Bisping at a catchweight. I get it. It's a business decision, but it just shows some hypocrisy and what you're doing and how you're conducting your business because you're holding people to standard. You're talking about being honorable and being a champion when you're just about the money. Just say you're about the money. Just admit you're about the money. And we can, we, it's all fine. But when you keep on with the pretense that you're about something more than this, it's about being the best champion of all time, 
you're being dishonest because it's not about being the most, the best and the most dominant champion. It's about making the most money and everybody can respect that, but just be honest about it. Conor McGregor's honest about it. He, as much as he cracks on Conor McGregor, Conor McGregor's honest about it. Nick Diaz is honest about it. Nate Diaz is honest. They didn't say I want to be the best. They didn't say they want a belt. They said they want to get paid. That's all they've ever said. Tyron Woodley switched his story. He said it's about being a champion, it's about being a legend, it's about being an all-time great. All time, you don't become an all-time great fighting fights like this. And if he has another money fight offered to him, I guarantee you he will take that over fighting a top-end welterweight. He'll fight one when he has to. He'll fight one when they make him or when he has no choice to. He's not looking to fight the best welterweight. He's looking for the, the biggest name and the best money maker. It's so unfortunate that, that this is the, the, the direction that we're headed in talking about him because he's such a better fighter than this. And, I, and he, man, there's just, just so many different things that are wrong, that's wrong with the situation and that he's damaging. Yes, he's going to make money. And he's putting himself in a position to, you know, hold on to that title to, and continue to getting the benefits that come with it. What's unfortunate is that this fight is almost booked in hopes that he does lose so the UFC can book a champion versus champion fight with Nate Diaz and Conor McGregor at some point in time in the future if the opportunity comes around. That's the, that's the sad part, that they booked this fight hoping clearly that he loses to kind of get him into that, to get him out of that position, and to get them into a fight that they want. That's what's so un unfortunate about this, and he's, and I hate to say, I, playing I right can, into I it. I think Diaz can win this fight too. I think there's, it's not, a, it's not necessarily a good chance, but there are ways that Diaz can win this fight. And if he, and I'm not, I have nothing against Woodley, but it's, if you look at it from a competitive point of view, it'd be, it'd be just desserts if Diaz found some way to beat him and finish him. I mean, we've seen him do it before, right? He did it against Conor the first time. He did it against Michael Johnson. We've seen him do it and figure out ways to win in fights that he's not supposed to. And it's so. And this is one that right now that Woodley cannot afford to lose because his career would be a train wreck after this. Yeah, it, it'd be it'd be funny to think that this guy got beat by a Walter uh, lightweight coming up. He got the money fight he wanted. It'd be funny if the same thing happened to him to having a Bisping. You got the money fight you wanted, and you had a suffered an embarrassing loss to a smaller fighter who hadn't been effective at your weight class and hadn't been particularly effective in his career recently. That would be, it, it would be ironic. It'd be irony at its best. And I, I don't even hate Tyron Woodley, but it'd be like, wow, you went for the money fight, you got your money, but you lost your belt, and you're taking a huge hit to your stock because you lost to a guy who really should have been easy work for you. Yeah, I can't even begin. I can't even stress that enough that this is not a fight that anyone wants to see. Um, and yeah, speaking, nobody asked for this fight. No one asked for this fight. And speaking of Conor McGregor, I'm sure you saw the coverage of his foolishness at Bellator 187 last week. Hey, Bellator appreciates those ratings. Thank you. Conor. I mean, hell, they were doing exactly what they were supposed to do, and that's promoting the hell out of that situation because it was uh, foolish from start to finish. And... I mean, it's just so many, like, again, so many different things wrong with the situation. It'll be interesting to see because a lot of people were saying that the story coming out of this is whether or not we're going to see whether or not Conor McGregor is bigger than the sport of, of MMA. And right now, it seems like he's bigger than the sport of MMA because even his apology wasn't real. His apology was a shot at Mark Goddard, which was unfortunate because he doesn't respect him at all. And his apology wasn't a real apology. It was like... It was just it was just foolishness. It was a Floyd um, Mayweather apology. How Floyd it was. Mayweather, it was. Yeah. 
It was. It totally was. And it was just, it's an unfortunate situation from start to finish because there's so many different questions to ask. Where was security? Why didn't they stop him the first time he jumped on the cage? Why wasn't he arrested? Because he damn sure um, committed a crime. Like, there's so many different situations. It's, it's, the, it's the money. I guarantee you, Floyd Mayweather walks into a ring. Security ain't putting their hands on him. Security ain't putting their hands on him. They ain't pulling him out. They ain't, they ain't arresting Floyd Mayweather. They, they're going to give him time, allow him some leeway if he wants to turn himself in. He's a star, and everybody knows stars get treated differently. That's just a fact. Let, let's, let's not pretend it. If you, whether you're a star salesman, a star athlete, star whatever, you get treated differently. And anybody who, who tries to ignore that fact is nuts. Let's, let's not lie. We're not idiots here. Let's, let's not pretend like we're dumb. You get treated differently because you follow the money. And, and nobody's going nobody's gonna to make any sort of move without seeing where he really is and, and putting him in the best position to not get a, to finish. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm not saying that he should have been that way. I'm not saying he deserves that. He deserves to be given that leeway. But the fact of the matter is um, that's always going to happen when you're a money guy. When you're the guy who's, who the money follows, you're going to get certain opportunities. And that's all that happened with him. He's getting opportunities based off who he is and the clout he has. Anybody else would have been arrested. Anybody else might have been assaulted. <laughs> right, right. Money maker. Might, might have been assaulted. Um, man, it, it, there's, this is just, this is, uh, it's just ridiculous to watch uh, occur. But I mean, it, it, we're gonna see. He's definitely bigger than the sport, and that's just the situation that we're in right now. Um, he did what he did. He's gonna get away with it, and it's just unfortunate that he's gonna be able to continue doing that because he, like, literally, he has no respect at, at this point in time. Just none. And and he acted out, and he's like, I, I guess. No one's really going to push back on him for that. UFC hasn't made a statement, that, and it's been six days since the uh, the situation occurred. I mean, hell, let's even kind of use this to segue into what Kobe Covington is doing. And we saw him and uh, Fabrico Werdum get into a fight uh, today. Werdum hit him in the face with the boomerang, and now he's getting hit with assault charges. I don't know if you saw, but um, Kobe Covington was supposed to be like a special guest at the event in Sydney this weekend, but they're flying him back. They're taking that he's not even going to be allowed to show up at, at, at the event. I mean, they need to do something about these fighters continuously stepping out of line, especially because you saw um, Kobe Covington on his live chat. Again, he dropped the um, the the f bomb, the gay slur that Conor McGregor is continuously caught using, and they need to do something about this because it's getting out of hand. And it's going to begin turning some fans off, some potential revenue and some potential fans off. And it's just getting, this is going too far for me. Yeah, well, the thing about it is, about about this whole thing he's doing is, um, hang on one second. I'm trying to make sure I had the right thought on this. Uh, um, you know, I, say your last sentence again. I totally just blinked out for a second. No, I'm just saying that, that the UFC is they're finding, they're finding themselves in these situations where, they're not punishing guys for acting out. Kobe Covington is being sent home from Sydney for his situation with um, We're Doomed. That's the only time in recent manner we've seen somebody really get punished. Like We're no longer in the days where Miguel Torres made the rape van joke and he's cut. Jason High pushed the referee after his fight. He is cut. We're no longer in those days. You were seeing guys get it, pushing the envelope more and more and just continuously getting away with it. Even um, Chris Cyborg, when she punched Angela Magania in the mouth at the... 
but at the UFC, those, those things have some. Those things have something in common, though. And I'm not saying they should have done this. It's not professional. That's not how you handle things in the adult world, right? But let's let's just face it, dude. Mangana ran her mouth. She verbally attacks and abuses people. And because she's a fighter, she can get away with it nine times because most regular people aren't going to step to her. Same thing with Colby Covington. He can say whatever he wants because he's a fighter. There's a certain kind of security in being a fighter. Now, all of a sudden, when people start running up on him, he, he, doesn't, want, he doesn't want problems? I mean, I know Verdun shouldn't be acting like that. I know it's a legal issue just waiting to get a hand. I know the UFC could be better about this. But there's a certain part of me that says, Covington, you ran your mouth. You said this stuff. You thought it was an act. You thought it was a show. And some people, they're not in on the act. They're not in on the game you're playing. They don't give a damn about you getting your title shot or you, you getting the big money fight. They're going to step to you because you're, you're being disrespectful. So at a certain level, he just broke the code of, you want to call it being a man, being in the streets. You, you, can't, you can't talk that reckless and not think anybody's going to come see you. Let, let's be honest about that. So at a certain level, I'm kind of happy he's, he's getting what he's getting. He, it happened. He, he, he talked it. He created this thing. He's saying the Brazilians are animals. You're filthy animals. He said all this stuff. He, did he not think that somebody at some point was going to run up on him? He's just going to be able to talk and say whatever he wants, whenever he wanted, and that was going to that was gonna fly? I mean, I guess he thought he did, but uh, Doom was not, not playing that shit. I'm not from the hood, and even I know you can't do that. Come on, man. I mean... <sighs> I mean, I'm not even mad at Werdum. You can't talk that greasy. You can't do that. Come nope. On. And then he just kept doing it. And he kept doing it. And he, I mean, I guess that's, that's, just, that's just what the hell you get for that um, situation. But like I said, I don't want to spend too much time on Kobe just because I'm not, I'm not a fan of, of the, the, the antics right now. But um, yeah, I just don't want to, I don't want to spend too much time on that guy, to be honest. But you are right. Legally, if something happens and somebody else gets hurt, I mean, I don't know how that falls back in the UFC because even though they're employees, they're independent contractors. So does that fall on the, the fighters? Or maybe the UFC doesn't care because it helps their show, but they don't suffer any legal repercussions because those are independent contractors. They don't, it doesn't fall on me. I don't have to pay for it if they do something stupid. We'll see, man. We'll see if they really uh, press these assault charges against um, against uh, Fabricio we're doing we shall see um so with that in mind let's talk about the fights for this weekend where we have uh who do we have fighting this weekend man i really don't even haven't been following this week but we have fabricio we and um a fighter named type honestly i do not i can be legit here i do not know much about marcin type here but um 16 and 2 he's ranked number eight in the division right now what are your thoughts about this heavyweight fight, and what else stands out on this card to you? I was thinking if Fabricio wasn't on decline, a steep decline, this wouldn't even be a question of this fight. Nobody would think it's competitive. It'd be considered a squash match. The fact of the matter is Verdum can't pull the trigger like he used to. He can't take punishment like he used to, and he can't fight. He doesn't fight with the aggression or pace that he used to, meaning that anybody who's willing to push back against him, anybody with any physicality and somebody who can pressure him is going to give him problems. He can't, he, he just doesn't have it in him to pull the trigger. Like, the, the way he fights, the way uh, Cordero has him fighting, demands you to have a certain kind of confidence and a certain kind of aggression that allows you to take your opponent's heart, to put them on their heels, and to physically set a pace and a to physical tone that they can't keep up, keep up with. 
Verdun can't do that anymore. He can't maintain the pace. He can't take the punishment. And as a result of knowing these two things, he's less likely to pull the trigger because he knows he can't handle what's coming back. In his fight against, against Overeem, he couldn't put the shots together. He was, he was overreacting to everything that Overeem threw, and he 